Hello, welcome to Faster Horses, a UX and UI podcast. Here on Faster Horses, we'll be exploring everything that is UX, UI, and anything in between. Today's episode is What is UX and UI? I've got together the UX and UI team at Blue Prism to discuss what is UX and UI. So I guess I should explain who Blue Prism are. They're the world's leading automation software and with a dream list of clients like eBay, Amazon, the NHS, you name it. So with automation and things like AI, machine learning, they're difficult things to kind of design for. Very complex, very heavy systems. And let's catch up with the Blue Prism team and uh, see see what they think of UX and UI. Hello, welcome. Uh, so uh, today we've got uh, James Ahmed, Nick Tomlinson, and Stacey Ray, in no particular order. And I'm Paul Wilshaw. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about UX and UI. We all work in UX and UI, and some of the challenges we have are. Nobody seems to know the difference between the two. Uh, is there any difference? Should there be any difference? And some places even define them as totally different jobs and departments. So uh, without further ado, let's start our discussion. James, UX, what's it mean to you? I should start off by saying that this is quite a popular meme in the UX, UI community. Uh, just taking two images and overlaying the words UX and UI because it's a simplistic uh, reduction of what is actually a really complex, uh, well, not really complex, but it's always a very simplistic reduction of what is actually quite a clear distinction, I think. For me, user experience encapsulates anything, anything that the user interacts with and any way in which the product interacts with the customer and the user um, and how that impacts on their overall uh, response. So, I mean, there's so many different things you can think about with this. Like the the, the interfaces that we use, i.e. the things that we use to interact with things, that for me, that is where UI stops um, being, it is related to UX, but if you think about the design of a car, for example, um, if I were to talk about um a combination of features such as uh, my key fob, uh, my door handles, my seat, uh, my steering wheel, my pedals, all of those things contribute towards my overall user experience. But my user interface is the is the specifics. It is uh, what is the shape, size, and you know overall construction of all of those items. And I think when you when you combine them all together. It's the, that combination that creates a user experience. So the two aren't, aren't completely separate, but I think uh, for me, it's, it's quite a, a simple, simple distinction to say that it's the combination of your interface elements and more that contributes to your user experience. Nick, you feel the same? I, I mean, I think that's a really good explanation. Um, the, the, the wording that you posed the question as was was interesting. That you, it's like how 
what does it mean to you? And that's yep. that's part of the problem is there's no sort of blanket like understanding or thing you can refer to to explain it to someone. Um, the way I try and explain it to people, and, and again, my understanding could be flawed, is that UX is the um, the feeling you get when you interact with like a digital product, and the UI is an aspect of that experience. So it's like the thumb is a finger, but not all fingers are a thumb. U, UI is part of the UX, but UX and UI aren't the, the same thing. So the UI is the, the visual aspect of the UX experience. Um, and if I try and explain it any more than that, my sort of understanding starts to, br to break down <laughs> and I start to peer into the UX void a little bit. But yeah, I think James did a better uh, a better job of explaining, really. Go on, Stacey, come and blow us out of the water with a, with a much better explanation. Generally, so I've talked to a lot of students about this um, in terms of like how to show them the difference between UX research and UI and UX design and things like that. And I usually try and use an analogy, which is um, UX to me is like building a house and the design foundations are UX and UX research. Um, and then the architect that comes in and kind of draws up all the plans to make sure it, it works the way it should. It's like the UX design part. And then the programmers are almost like the people that build it. And then the UI design is to make it look pretty with paint and flowers and, and things on the outside. Um, and I, I've always kind of used that as a good analogy to show the difference between um, what you focus is in in because I know there's a lot of crossover between things like UI, UI and UX, but I think your focus is generally um, at, at different stages. And I think that has always been a good visual analogy to me to kind of think about is building a house and how you all kind of come together to build that house in the best way possible. Um, and ideally, yeah, um, if UX was to be implemented right at the start, um, it would be like building the foundations for the house, so picking where it would go, what, what should you build it with, all these kind of things. Um, they're like the design research and the design foundations. So hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a nice analogy. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so interesting, interesting to see uh, everyone's take on uh, UX and UI. For me, it's kind of like all combined as one and, and having them split out uh, doesn't always make sense. Like even UI should be perhaps considered in the research phase without going too far into showing what a screen should look like because then you start leading that research into a direction that you may never get out of and you get into that hole of finding kind of like way way too much uh, uh, information about how things look and the colors where you don't want that information up front so uh, yeah it's it's a real interesting one and it's it's often quite an interesting challenge is to bring businesses with no idea about that into that kind of uh, vision as well so uh, we'll talk about some of that in a in a bit as well. Um, but I noticed we're joined by the the lovely Mark Sutcliffe now, um, fresh hello, from hello. hello, whatever I was doing, yes, yeah, fresh from whatever he was doing. Let's <laughs> let's skip over that bit. Um, so Mark, we were talking about UX UI. What's the difference? Oh, that's a a big one. I feel immediately my gut instinct tells me that. Um, 
UX happens almost at a more intrinsic level, whereas UI could be considered those more tangible outcomes or, or facilitators towards that. Well, that. That would be my succinct kind of synopsis on the difference between UX UI. I've not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. Uh, no, uh, that's good for now. And um, so I suppose, I suppose challenge, challenges of bringing a company along, uh, you know, kind of if we're all doing UX UI for companies, what are those challenges? What challenges have you seen and, and, what cha- and how could we ever overcome those things? I think the biggest challenge is always because UX and UI is, is whilst not, um, I wouldn't say it's new, it certainly feels new to a lot of established companies. And I think integrating that that new, because our current team's only been together, what, 12 months approximately, the full team's only been together a matter of months. And I feel like integrating in with something so, so um, potentially you know, ingrained in its ways presents a very unique challenge to what to what other other sectors of the industry have to face. I don't know what are other people's thoughts on that. For me, that it, it was a long learning curve to to learn to speak people's language. So, um, I've been and I've done a um, a meeting about like why they, these things are important, and a lot of the time people don't care. And it and it's when I realise actually you need to kind of personalise it to those people and and show where you're going to add value to them specifically. And actually, I'd, I'd sit down with each individual individual team. Um, so, for example, product owners um, sit with them and tell them why UX is valuable to them. And usually they care mostly about like business and, and um, profits and, and how fast things can get done and things like that. And then programmers obviously have a different things that they care about. Um, so I've always found it's easiest to try and speak everybody's language and show because I think UX to me, has lots of different values to different people. Um, for example, for programmers, the value for me is in the prototype. So if I've got a prototype and everything's already laid out for you, that's way easier for a program to then just go off and, and do and not have to think about anything like layouts and just kind of program and, and do what they do best. Um, in terms of like product owners, I'd say um, the value in, in their side of things is that you you when you do release something, you're less likely to get negative feedback or um, or certain feedback if you do that extra level of research and design before you actually release something. So, you know, you can say to them a, month, a couple of months down the line, you might not necessarily have to re-release it because you're going to get all this negative feedback potentially um, and kind of stop some of that happening. So, yeah, I, I kind of feel in terms of bringing everyone together on board with UX, it's speaking to them individually and showing them personally where it adds value. Do you think we encounter an issue then? where that takes a lot of time, especially if you've got a big company that's well established. Is there a, ever a quick way to do it? Because that sounds like to me a process that would take a considerable amount of time. It's a, a big effort. And when you have a, an institution that's, that's so keen to see returns, um, either research-wise or, or intangible assets, do you think there's a quicker way to inject yourself into that process or, or did you ever actually ever do it at all realistically there is that as well <laughs> i think potentially you can just show that the issue that i find and i don't know if you guys would agree with me here 
But um, the, the issue is, is that you don't see the value of UX right away. Generally, you have to release something and have the user feedback kind of sell itself in a sense. Um, maybe you can get some people that can see um, your prototypes and then see the current version and say, yeah, that looks better. But it's not like sales where they can instantly get that gratification and that value straight away where they've just sold something that month. It usually takes a couple of months to release it and then a bit to get feedback and make sure that you know the return is that more people are signing up or more people are going through the onboarding or whatever so the return on ux isn't as straight away so i think you kind of have to go down a different direction of not of not potentially showing that right away because you can't because you have to wait yeah but i take your point on board that it can take a long time but i think it's um i think it's it's just education and it and it's necessary what yeah so what what happens if you don't have that educational breathing space you know kind of like uh i, I remember being in, in companies a long time ago uh, and you know your brief as a, a designer or the sole designer is to just get get something done get get this visualization done for the client um and there's no uh, interaction with any uh, potential customers, no interaction with current customers. And it's just get this done. Uh, you know, when you run the clock, you've got to deliver it. How do you bake any UX into that that part then? I suppose, if I may, then you have to become a little bit dependent on, on quick victories. Um, <clears throat> obviously not not by quick being in any way worthless, but I think you have to look at the total remit of work and and see what you can do immediately that's of, of relatively high value and relatively low effort. Um, uh, that, that would be what I think. Um, but yes, yeah, Stacey, what, what about you and everyone else, of course? <laughs> the way that makes me think is that when, when you're working under that situation, you're almost uh, trying to get something past that person's scrutiny and signed off rather than actually build a good user experience, which is in and of itself like a huge issue, isn't it? I think that's the challenge I've faced designing generally for the last, yeah. you know, 10 years or so is finding a, an optimal solution for particularly for clients or stakeholders often requires not only good design skill, but also understanding what they and it's not about trickery so much as it is about i know they can understand this decision making process but i need to make them feel as though uh, you know because they're always going to have that sense of confirmation bias and we probably have exactly the same thing we think well i i know i'd, I'd prefer it to be like this and I'm, I'm usually sure i can validate those assumptions with users but sometimes it's the client and the stakeholder you have to think right how do i tell person X uh, I'm doing Y and at the same time make them think that I'm doing Z which is yeah. their decision um yeah and it's yeah I, I don't want to sound like a like it's a deceitful profession but I think sometimes <laughs> you, you spend a lot of time you know well I, I certainly have spent a lot of the last my entire working career really making people feel like that yeah that's like that comes down to individuals people skills and it's not necessarily like a prerequisite of being a designer is it but no. the you mentioned like being aware of your own self biases that the fact that you are aware of your own self biases um, a lot of the people that you're trying to sell an idea to aren't, aren't even that aware of their own like biases at least we've got with ahead of the curve in that in that respect 
I think often for me, it's been a liken to terrorist negotiation. I'm actually reading a book right now about terrorist negotiation I'm, and the art I'm, of negotiation. Yep, I'm doing something very uh, similar. Called uh, never split the difference and like it's it's about sort of pricing jobs and stuff but the idea behind it is that if you were negotiating with the terrorist you couldn't you couldn't like meet in the middle ground you've got to get all the you know all the hostages out it's, or not and it's just a really it, it seems like an aggressive idea when you're talking about hostage negotiation it seems like a really aggressive idea but actually it's about understanding what they need and what they're actually saying um, understanding what they're trying to say and not actually the words they're saying and kind of reflecting back to them their needs and just getting some agreement and coming to a it is about sort of sort of meeting the middle ground really perhaps i don't understand the book properly at this point but <laughs> is that is that by chris voss yeah Christopher voss. Yeah. yeah he's i've been uh, doing some research into him and uh interesting tactics on mirroring and labeling yeah yeah, uh, yeah. specifically used in in terrorist negotiations and it, it it's curious to think that you have to go to such extremes yeah <laughs> just yeah it's it that's the thing when you when you talk about it in those terms it sounds really extreme but when you actually read the book it's all very reasonable and it's all very about understanding people, which is, you know, like you should you should be able to understand people. It's yeah. quite it's quite good. Tactically. But then, but then they're twisting that and making loads of money out of people. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say, I think this entire thing, this entire um loggerhead, if you will, comes from the fact that you have essentially you have the business and the company and the customers. And this is one of the first, uh, well, it is certainly a profession, I don't know if it's one of the first, that is almost entirely, if not entirely, user-centric, as opposed to sales-driven or product-driven. Ours is driven by the needs of the user. And when a, um, a stakeholder, who is obviously more concerned with his own needs than that of the user, he just wants it pushed out, then I think we essentially become both in, in literally as people, but also in, in terms of our um, the assets we create uh, and the journeys we create for, for users, we become in a sense, middle, middle people. Um, and it's, us to, it's up to us to maintain and negotiate that relationship between the user and the product and the people who are running the product. Um, and I think that that's quite a unique situation in the past, say, three, four decades. Yeah, totally. Um, so also as well, uh, there, there is, uh, going back to ter terrorist negotiation, Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, I don't know if anyone's come across that in the world of design. So that is kind of when you become embedded in-house mainly uh, and you can get into the way of thinking and you end up kind of putting those biases that you know uh, you know, where you have the negotiations in that will be more acceptable in the future. Uh, and sometimes that goes very against uh, what users actually want, uh, but you're kind of delivering to to the people who've got all those hostages. <laughs> so, any thoughts on that? It's, a, it's certainly a strong analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Very crystal clear in terms of, of what's going on. Um, yeah, I think I've never, I've never really been in one place long enough. I've found maybe it's because of my pursuits in freelance to be so compelled by a 
company's pre-existing ideas, but I have found I've been too smitten with my own ideas. And I think that is something, again, the going down that, that hall that in, and into that rut, if you're not careful of of thinking you know better than what both business and users want. Uh, and I suppose because you are a negotiator, your your point is is not to, to uh, make your own rules, as it were, almost. I'm trying to remember the terminologies I've heard, but to to um, to acknowledge and uh, not not quite adopt, but acknowledge and respect the rule sets of the business and the products compared to the rule sets of the users, or, or in other words, the needs of either, and find a way of mediating between the two, as opposed to just saying, well, I want it this way, and I can go over all your heads. So, yeah, I can see how, how Stockholm Syndrome is. I don't, I don't think it's a binary distinction. I think there'll always be a push and a pull, I think. You know, I imagine, Stacey, you, you could talk about that whole, the three spheres, you know, three three planetary spheres, each with their gravity pulling towards their, their um, you know, their core. And those three spheres are the user, uh, the design, uh, the business, well, there's four spheres and the technology as well. I think design design should always be have inferior gravity to the user because I think ultimately if the user uses needs and we're, we're more like orbiting, we're the moon orbiting uh, the user figuring that out. But um, the business tends to have a very strong pull towards it, as does technology. And often, you know, what we what the user tells us, what we attempt to design what is possible with the technology available and what the business demands can be four extremely different things. And I think as long as most things land where the user needs them to be, the better. Although, you know, I, I'm not beyond pragmatism in terms of understanding that, you know, every now and then a business, a business stakeholder isn't going to isn't going to agree with me or uh, the technology isn't going to allow it to happen. But yeah, that 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 whole thing of the, the push and the pull of, from all those different forces. Um, I think, you know, the the user at the end of the day, what the other three things achieve is worth nothing if the user doesn't get what they need from it. And I think it's just you're doomed to absolute product failure if um, if any one of those forces too greatly outweighs the other. Yeah, good point. Uh, good point. I think to add to that as well is like a whole new topic of like bad data. So actually going out and getting data and it's not very good. And there's a few few things that I've personally seen where such as like asking very leading questions, um, pointing users towards one idea because you prefer it um maybe it's an unconscious bias and and kind of things like that and even like analyzing data can also be be its own kind of mess as well so um there's a lot of data out there but it doesn't necessarily mean it's all good data and i've got quite a few data science friends um and and they're constantly going on about the amount of like bad data and the bad uses of data I, I think that's one thing to kind of be aware of also is knowing that when we do do stuff like user research and we do get data from users, um, it's it's good quality of data and not and not bad. Yeah, I think the real danger with data comes from when you you place too much investment in the in the quality in the quantitative information, so metrics that don't necessarily tell you anything because you know you you can you can look at a set of metrics and get them to tell you whatever you want essentially but if you um unless you actually have a conversation and 
work out the decision making that went into the you know the actions that produce that information you can get two very different uh, interpretations of a single data set i i always have the um the the tagline <laughs> of everything's possible with time and money uh so if we wanted to send someone to the moon you know i'm sure between the four of us here we could do it but without that time and money it's probably going to be impossible. Uh, so kind of those, those kind of things. And especially if you're working in the, the startup environment where to get something, you know, out very quickly, uh, get an MVP or as uh, we like to call it, an MVD, um, Minimum Viable Delightful Product. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's so difficult uh, to get that, that first version right for every users because that's when you've got no budget and no uh, user research no good data uh, to go on so it's it's a it's a tricky and fine balance to do that the other thing i'd add to that i think is um that there are five of us not four <laughs> there, there are now mark sorry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This has been Faster Horses, a UX and UI podcast. With thanks to all my guests, Stacey Ray, Mark Sutcliffe, when he turned up, Nick Tomlinson and James Med. We'll be back for another episode in about two weeks. Uh, we'll try and do these about every two weeks. And uh, and also thanks to James Med for the soundtrack and Nick Tomlinson for the cover art. Cool. We'll see you soon.